Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR Digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Yeah, solidarity forever. And you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Marcus. G'day, Marcus, how are oh, you? G'day, Annie. Yeah, good, thanks. And yeah, morning to all the many listeners out there to Solidarity Breakfast. Yeah, and just to uh, catch people up if they are unaware that uh, sad news that uh, Chris Gaffney passed away on Thursday. He was suffering from an illness, so it was uh, perhaps a a welcome uh, relief in a sense for him. But it's a very sad day for the station and for everyone else. And we were just mentioning that we've just, the reason why it came to mind, of course, was that Chris's voice was on the, uh, just, uh, the, the, uh, little sponsorship announcement for the book. And then, of course, there was Bill's voice too. And of course, sad, uh, Bill was a very sad loss for Solidarity Breakfast and 3CR. But it's lovely to hear their voices. One of the reasons why radio is so wonderful. Yeah, both Bill and Chris hosted the Friday morning show, was it? Uh, keep Keep Left? Yeah, Keep and, Left. And yeah, Bill, of course, occupied yeah, the studio during this time slot for many years yeah, on yeah. Solidarity Breakfast. You better watch it, Marcus. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, we'll move on to happier, to, to, on a happier note. But, uh, I mean, these are celebrations of these people who are the most wonderful types. Um, and we're very grateful to have met both of those people. Uh, today we're going to go to Canberra. I went. I had a yarn with uh, Alex White, who's from uh, Unions ACT. They've come up with this plan that uh, they think is a really good way of streamlining the uh, uh, wage theft uh, um, claims by especially young workers who are experiencing wage theft. He talks about it as in, endemic in um, Canberra and that area. And uh, they've got a industrial uh, magistrate's court up there and uh, they've got a plan for uh, uh, streamlining, as I said, the wage theft uh, uh, issue, uh, and so I had a yarn with him about that. And you, you, you uh, have organised an interview with uh, Pete, someone from the James Connolly uh, Association. Yeah, yeah. A bit later on in the show, uh, Chris McAnally from the James Connolly Association, who's the vice chairman, will be coming on to talk about uh, the rally at the State Library today. The rally, uh, British State collusion, time for truth. That oh, yeah. takes place at yeah two o'clock today at the uh, State Library of Victoria, and they'll be marching down to. 
the British consulate. Yeah, which is a very interesting and timely time to go through those issues. We uh, go on to Figo for pensioners. So we're going to be talking to uh, Chris Palitas, who is the chairperson for the Ethnic Communities Council of, of Victoria, who is also part of Fair Go for Pensioners. So hopefully we'll get an insight into what are the key issues for her constituency. We're going to move on with uh, uh, and take you to the Dap Ruang, uh Embassy to find out what's going on there. They're not going to move. They uh, went to Parliament for three days over the last week and uh, did... Uh, uh, glued themselves to uh, the um, barrier, banisters in the uh, um, public gallery there and uh, they want people from uh, the city to realise just how important the sacred trees are. Uh, August the 22nd, of course, is the D-Day for supposed eviction orders and uh, following that there's going to be a, a, a chat with someone about something that's going to go on along Sydney Road today, our, um, an Extinction Rebellion event, a Moreland Die-In Ride-In you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Marcus. Red alert. Numbers are needed at the Japarang Heritage Protection Embassy camps immediately. Sacred birthing trees on Japarang country need protecting. Over 50 generations have been born on these sites and the birthing trees themselves are 800 years old. These trees are being protected from the Victorian Labor Party's planned highway extension that is set to destroy this sacred dreaming landscape. The cops are coming with eviction orders very soon. The campaign to protect country is led by Japarang traditional owners who are calling on people from all walks of life for support. You can help by joining traditional owners at the camp on Japarang country near Ararat or by donating and putting pressure on Daniel Andrews to protect this sacred land. Visit dwembassy.com for more information and updates. No trees, no treaty. So Alex White, uh, the ACT unions have come up with a incredibly interesting idea around wage or how to rectify wage theft. Can you talk to my listeners about this tribunal concept? Well, certainly. So what uh, the background is that we've been doing some surveys of young workers for a number of years now, and one of the things that um, they tell us is that they know that they're uh, experiencing wage theft and being ripped off by their boss, but they don't pursue it, and the reason for that is that it's complex, uh, very time-consuming and expensive. And so in order to go through the Fair Work Commission uh, and the small claims process there, it can often uh, take years and years uh, to get any justice, and so by that stage, most young workers give up and have quit the job, moved on, uh, particularly because the amount that we're talking about might probably be a few thousand dollars. The alternative is to go to the magistrate's court or the federal court, and of course the problem with that uh, is that you need lawyers and the filing fees are very high. It becomes very uh, expensive very quickly, and once again, if you're dealing with uh, a few thousand dollars of wage theft, the uh, court filing fees alone are... Uh, that um, that much money, so most um, most young workers in particular don't uh, go go down that route. And this, of course, is why employers feel that they can do it. Yes, that's right. I mean, they have figured out in the last. I mean, the reason why we're in this situation is that about 15 years ago, John Howard removed the ability for unions to inspect the records of all workers in a workplace. 
Yeah. And uh, and the consequence of that is it's removed our ability to quickly resolve wage theft cases. And then, of course, the uh, work, uh, the Industrial Relations Commission or Fair Work Commission has been politicised and under-resourced, so it means that uh, basically uh, it takes forever to get any kind of justice. So what we've proposed in the ACT is that the, the ACT government uh, use the existing industrial magistrates court. So a couple of years ago, uh, we were successful in getting the government to create an industrial magistrates court, mainly to deal with uh, workplace safety issues. And we had, that was on the back of a, uh, a number of very uh, distressing workplace deaths. Mm. We also had at the time uh, industrial manslaughter laws introduced as well. Now, what we uh, want the government to do is to extend the role of the Industrial Magistrates Court to be a small claims tribunal for wage theft and to have compulsory conciliation. Now, for your listeners, what that means is that um, if a young worker has had uh, you know, $1,000 of wages stolen from them, they can go to the union. The union can uh, very inexpensively uh, lodge the case in the Industrial Magistrates Court and then, before you go through the expensive uh, court process, you have a compulsory conciliation, which means that the boss needs to come into the court and sit down with you and the union, be presented with all the facts, that you know the pay slips or the evidence that um, they've been underpaid, and a court registrar uh, is there, and they would suggest that um, rather than go through all the process of uh, expensive trials, litigation that they just pay back the stolen wages. So it means that we can solve all the major barriers that uh, currently exist for uh, young workers who want to get justice when their wages are stolen. So the major uh, prob- the major barriers, as you see it, uh, do they include the uh, recalcitrance of the employer? I mean, well, what they most say. employers get very recalcitrant once lawyers get involved. So when you lodge a wage theft case in the magistrate's court or the federal court, uh, the first thing that the employer does is go to their lawyer and they've instantly dropped a couple of thousand dollars on that. Yeah. So it means suddenly they have a very perverse incentive, it's loss aversion, but a perverse incentive to fight the wage theft case, even if they've got no chance of uh, success. They would rather fight it than um, uh, than just resolve it and pay the money back. Having a compulsory conciliation, which is one of the, another one of the things that John Howard got rid of, means that they don't get lawyers involved. Uh, they're still in a court setting, uh, but there is an incentive for them to resolve the matter very quickly rather than... Um, get lawyers involved and uh, fight it. Of course, there's still going to be employers that do fight it, and it would be particularly for ones where we're talking about wage theft that might be in the order of fifty or $60,000 or, you know, George Kalambaris style, yeah. $7 million. $7.8 dollars, yeah. They're still going to fight uh, tooth and nail to uh, not have to pay back those wages. But for the vast majority, the vast majority of uh, wage theft cases aren't, $7.8 million, there, uh, a boss has stolen a couple of hundred dollars or a thousand dollars over the course of a year or several months from a young worker. And the pr- process that we're proposing in the ACT would mean that uh, the union is involved in the conciliation and that uh, 
it gets solved uh, very quickly without having to go to uh, the full court process. Although, of course, it still does allow for a full uh, court process to take place. Yeah, because uh, really what we're talking about here is in some cases people, well, there's actually an ideological push to remove all uh, minimum wages, penalty rates, uh, uh, open slather to the employer's desire to maybe pay people one cent for their hourly labour, you know. That's right. I mean, there are going to be employers that are bad, that is rotten to the core, and this won't stop them from uh, from stealing wages, but it will allow... Uh, effectively, what we're proposing is that unions... What unions used to be able to do uh, 15, 20 years ago to stop wage theft from happening, we'll be able to do again, not through the federal system, but through the local uh, magistrate's court. It'll also mean that um, we're able to access the court... Um, uh, enforcement mechanisms. So if a boss, so one of the problems that we've got as well under the fair work uh, system uh, is even if you win your, your wage theft case and the fair work commission orders that uh, the employer pay you back the stolen wages, they can just refuse to do it and then you still, then you would need to go to court, normally federal court, and spend thousands of dollars again in actually getting a court order to enforce uh, the back payment, which could include, you know, uh, confiscation or of assets or other things. So um, that further adds um, a lengthy delay to the very weak fair work system that we've got. Yeah, yeah, the, magistrate, yeah. the industrial magistrate court and getting a industrial magistrate court order uh, to recover stolen wages means that we can actually the unions can engage with the court sheriffs who can go and uh, recover the wages directly and with the, the full authority of the court. So it means that there's no place for um, the dodgy boss to hide if they refuse to comply with the conciliation outcome or the court order. Okay. Is there any uh, interest in this? You know, you've presented it, you've pushed it. Is there any interest? Well, yes, we've got a ACT government, a Labor government here that is very pro-worker and they've introduced a whole range of very positive laws at our, um, at our suggestion uh, that uh, support workers' rights. So we've got a whole bunch of improved rights uh, when it comes to workers who work on government-funded um, jobs and uh, when it comes to workplace safety. So we think that they are going to be very supportive of this. In fact, what we want is for them to know that there's a lot of support in the community, in the ACT community, uh, for taking this kind of action against wage theft, which we know that there is. We know that uh, the vast majority of people want uh, stronger laws when it comes to wage theft. So uh, we think that uh, when the government sees that, they'll do the right thing, which they've done in the past, and introduce these laws. So are you doing surveys? We've done surveys in the past about wage theft and we know that the vast majority of people uh, support, support this. Stronger, yep. stronger action and stronger laws when it comes to... I mean, you know, they, as you would know in Victoria and in other jurisdictions, there's very strong support for criminalising wage theft. That's not something that we're looking at in the ACT. Um, but uh, we know that the community is absolutely appalled at the level of the vast level of wage theft. And in the ACT, we've got a real wage theft crisis. So over 50% of young workers in the ACT experienced wage theft in the last 12 months.
Yeah, right. And, and increased quite significantly, significantly over the last few years. Oh, has it? Is, do you think that's related to what flavour federal government we've got? I think it is related to the context where uh, employers are increasingly realising that they can get away with it and that there is a federal government that is cheering on uh, big business and attacks on workers' rights. So that's the environment. I mean, this government wants to give an amnesty to wage thieves who steal super. There's billions of dollars of stolen super each year. And rather than crack down on that, and that's money that's all... Uh, that's that's p- the workers' money. Retirement. It's workers' money and it's their retirement money. But uh, over three, I think it's $3 billion a year gets stolen uh, with super theft. And this government, federal government, wants to give an amnesty that is a free pass to bosses who steal uh, super. And it's th- that's th- that is thousands of dollars. So I think in Canberra it's an average of $3,500 a year that's uh, stolen. Yeah. So... We're not talking small, and over obviously, you know, over um, forty years, yeah. uh, years of someone's working life, forty-five years of working life, that adds up to a lot. So that's the context that we've got with the federal government that is attacking workers' rights, attacking unions, and in fact cheering on and enabling wage thieves. Just to clarify, is this court the only court of its sort in Australia, or is the one the uh, workers, the magistrates' court that deals with? Uh, uh, labour issues? I think there is an industrial magistrate court in Victoria, but uh, there's not a lot of industri- specialised industrial magistrates courts in Australia. So, um, But it could be something that... Uh, every, is... Any jurisdiction could create this kind of court. Yeah, OK. Yeah. Thanks very much for your time. No worries. Great. You. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. You are, and uh, on the line we've got to Chris McAnally. Yeah, uh, Chris is the Vice Chairman of the James Connolly Association. Uh, welcome to the program, Chris. Hi, thanks for having me. No worries. Um, so firstly, Chris, can you tell us about the uh, James Connolly Association, what, what the group does? Uh, so we're an Irish Republican organisation. Uh, so basically our main aim is to highlight sort of Ireland's plight, uh, in particular uh, the occupied uh, counties in the northeast. Okay, and James Connolly, yeah, died for the uh, died for the cause for a free That's and united right, Ireland. Yeah. So we take our name from uh, James Connolly, who uh, was one of the leaders of the Easter Rising in 1916. Uh, he was executed by the uh, by the Brits uh, after the Rising came to an end after about a week of fighting. Uh, yeah, and he was uh, he was executed uh, sitting in uh, his chair. He was so beat up and you know, wounded, uh, and uh, they had to actually strap him to a chair before they could execute him. He was so, a great—he yeah, was a great man because his uh, intellectual grasp of uh, why uh, he, uh, the Irish were fighting is uh, quite inspiring. Oh yeah, he was. Um, yeah, a very smart man. You know, you can go through um, many of his readings, and just his uh, his evaluation and analysis of the Irish plight is. Um, yeah, it's. It's very well done, you know, and it's very articulate. It's very coherent, you know. Uh, it leaves, it doesn't leave anything unturned. A very brave man. Yes. And a hundred years later, yeah, the fight for a, an Irish republic uh, goes on. That, you, that there, as you said before, there's still the occupied six counties in the north. That's correct. Yeah. So you know, 
a lot of people like to think the troubles are over, but that's not entirely true. You still have people that like ourselves that are campaigning, you know, for a united Ireland. Uh, you know, it's just it's one of those things that, you know, British propaganda, you know, seems to sort of gloss over. You know, the fact of the matter is the majority of Irish people don't want a partitioned Ireland. They want a unified Ireland. It's interesting because in that last election that the English had, uh, the the balance of the Conservative powers was uh, partially uh, held by the, uh, what do they call themselves? The uh, the Democratic Unionist Party. So yeah, they that's are, right. Yeah, that's right. So they are the, the sort of hardline Protestants uh, in the north of Ireland who view themselves not as Irish but as British. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was. It was that party. Um, that That's the DUP or the Democratic Unionist Party or the major sort of um, unionist, party, uh, unionist party in the north. And they'd have uh, a, a strong investment in partition, wouldn't they? Most definitely, you know. Um, partition created a privileged elite. You know, before before partition, you know, the, um, the Protestant British uh, population, you know, was quite small in comparison to, you know, your native Irish Catholics. So when partition occurred and they set up, you know, the, the northern statelet, it ended up enshrining a Protestant majority of about two to one ah. uh, in favour of, you know, in favour of Protestants over Catholics. So you had about a million, a million Protestants to half a million Catholics. And later today, Chris, uh, the, the James Connolly Association will host the uh, Rally for Truth and Justice in Melbourne. So uh, w- what's the aim of the rally? Uh, so the aim of the rally is to expose uh, the British state's active involvement in the murder of Irish civilians, uh, in particular their use of loyalist paramilitaries to carry out these attacks. So there's been several instances where the Brits, rather than, you know, uh, let me start again. Uh, excuse me. Uh, so rather than uh, go out and you know commit these attacks themselves, they use loyalist paramilitaries as a cover. Uh, so they supply them with the information, uh, the names of the people, where they live, and things like that. And then groups like the UDA, the UVF, the LVF would then go out and uh, commit these attacks on you know innocent Republicans. Is is that recent? Um. <clears throat> At the moment, because of the Good Friday Agreement, it's not really recent. Uh, but the fact of the matter is the Brits still haven't, in a lot of cases, haven't come forward and admitted their involvement or attempted to reconcile uh, with the families of the victims. So, for instance, we have two uh, we have two people, or at least two people, who will be at the rally today that have been directly uh, directly affected by collusion. So, for instance, we have a relative of Sean Brown who was kidnapped uh, by the Loyalist Volunteer Force in May of 1997 uh, outside uh, Gaelic Athletic Club uh, in Balai, County Derry. And uh, the, the poor man was taken to a lane uh, in Randall's turn, he was beaten, and then he was shot six times and uh, just left by his burning car to be found. We have another, uh, we have another uh, person who will be there who's a relative of John McCare, who was, or who we believe, 
was killed by the same parachute regiment that committed the Bloody Sunday atrocity. So the um, way of doing politics and uh, the peace agreement and the six uh, counties that are still uh, partitioned off effectively are real real bones of contention. Oh, most definitely. You know, uh, the the two communities, you know, whether it's your Ulster Protestants uh, or your Irish Nationalists, you know, there's still a lot of um, there's still a lot of resentment there. You know, there's a lot of issues that the Good Friday Agreement just hasn't um, been able to rectify. You know, it's such an ambiguous document. You know that it really can be interpreted either way. So you know, you had a lot of Irish nationalists that thought the Good Friday Agreement was going to be the gateway to United Ireland, and then you had your Ulster um, your Ulster Unionists who basically viewed the document as a guarantee to partition. You know, like mm. I said, it's written in such a way that really you can interpret it whatever way you want. So, you know, as um, Brendan Shoes, a uh, dissident IRA leader, once said, we got everything except what we actually wanted. <laughs> and on the subject of uh, collusion and cover-ups, recently an inquest was conducted into the uh, 1971 uh, Bally Murphy massacre. Did that a- a- achieve... Yeah. Yeah, so that that's that's a that's a great you know sort of milestone for us. And John McCare, who I mentioned just before, uh, who was killed, he was killed in the Bally Murphy massacre, where this um, yeah this parachute regiment, the same ones that committed the Bloody Sunday atrocity, basically just went on a rampage for two days yeah. uh, throughout the Bally Murphy area of Belfast um, and just picked off Irish civilians at will. And through the week was uh, the 50th uh, anniversary commemoration of the uh, Battle of Bogside. That's right. That's correct. You know, um, that just shows you, you know, um, like uh, to take it back to the question about that that uh, concept of contention, you know, Derry has never wanted to be a part of uh, the northern statelet. You know, it has it actually has a Catholic majority. It has an Irish nationalist majority. Uh it doesn't want to be a part of this um, northern statelet, and they, you know, they proved that at the Battle of the Bogside, where they pushed out, you know, not only, um, not well, they pushed out the the RUC, which was the police force at that time, uh, and it was a predominantly Protestant police force, and, and they the, kept them running, and the jailing of um, Irish Republicans in Ireland's north uh, without charge uh, goes on today. That's correct, yeah, internment without trial is what we call it. So basically they just scoop you up and if they suspect you of um if they suspect you of supposed terrorist activities, uh yeah, they just they, they throw you away. Uh, you know, no key. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Goodness, it's an infection right across the world, isn't it, this business about throwing away the key? Yeah, yeah. Well that's right. It's um, you know, uh, to take it back to, to take it back to the north, you know, internment, you know, started back in the the seventies, and in the first sweep uh, when they did it, they picked up one Protestant, you know, and he was picked up because he was misidentified as a Catholic, you know. So, one, <laughs> you know, that's so Irish. You've got to admit. Yeah, yeah, it's it's crazy, you know, but it, it shows you that it's just something that's used to target a specific ethnic group, not not only a political grouping, but an ethnic grouping. Yeah, yeah. All right, so um, 
everyone's going to be meeting outside the State Library at 2 o'clock in Melbourne? That's correct, yeah. We'll have a full Republican colour party. We'll have um, four speakers. Uh, well, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be one hell of a day. Uh, who, who are the speakers, Chris? Uh, so we have myself as the vice chairman. We have Martin Brown as the chairman, Patrick Gallagher, and we have another speaker. Um, unfortunately, his name I do not remember. Slips your mind. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and that's at yeah, two o'clock at the State Library and they'll be marching to the British Consulate. Correct. Thanks for talking to us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Chris. I was born in a Dublin street where the lyre drums did beat and the loving English beat they drummed all over us. And every single night that me father came home tight, hidden by the neighbours outside of this chorus. Come out, you black and tan, come out and fight me like a man. Joy, white, how you want to never sound in Flanders. Ah, how the IRA made you run like hell away from the green and lovely lanes of Kalishanda. Come, let me hear you tell how you slammed the brave Parnell when you thought them well and truly persecuted. Where are the sneers and jeers that you bravely let us hear when our leaders of 16 were executed? Come out, gentle like a man, come out and fight me like a man. Joy, a white are you want to meddle down in Flanders? Ah, how the IRA made you run like hell away from the green and lovely lanes of Bravely called him swine Robert and the two you hung and threw and quartered High upon the scaffold high How you murdered Henry Joy And our crappy boys in Wexford you did slaughter Come out, chicken like and pan Come out and fight me like a man Joy, white how you want medals down in Flanders Ah, how the IRA made you run like hell away From the green and lovely lanes of Time is nearly past When each journey will be cast aside before us And if there be a need Then we kids will say Godspeed With a bar or two of Stephen Bins forward Come out, gentle like and pan Come out and fight me like a man Joy a white power you want Nettles down in Flanders Ah, how the IRA Made it run like hell away From the green lovely lanes of The yearly World Goa Day Fiesta is on again on the 24th of August at St. Louis de Montfort Hall in Aspendale. Now in its 17th year, the World Goa Day Fiesta celebrates the rich Goan culture with live bands and a delicious buffet spread. All welcome. Tickets are $50 per adult, $25 for children between ages 5 and 10, and $45 for pensioners. Call or SMS Oscar on 0404 848 345. That's 0404-848-345. The World Goa Day Fiesta is a 3CR supporter.
The Australian Plants Expo is a huge native plant fair with displays, books, garden pots, giftware and activities for children, along with talks, demonstrations, workshops, refreshments and door prizes. The Australian Plants Expo, Saturday the 14th and Sunday the 15th of September, 10am to 4pm at the Eltham Community and Reception Centre, 801 Main Road, Eltham. Adults $5, concessions $4 and children free. Contact Australian Plant Society Yarra Yarra via email on apsyarrayarra at gmail.com or call 0430 513 433 for more information. The Australian Plant Society Yarra Yarra is a 3CR supporter. And we're back on Solidarity Breakfast. Um, Marcus, I can't raise the person from Fair Go for Pensioners, but I've got a great thing uh, that uh, was on at their conference. A will struck from the uh, Victoria Trades Hall uh, gave a speech. She was asked to come along and have a uh, yarn with everybody about how unions are fighting for workers' rights. And so she did. And so we'll have a listen to what Will had to say. Um, I'll start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land that we're meeting on today and pay respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to any First Nations comrades who may be with us here today. Uh, I acknowledge that this land was stolen, never ceded and that it always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Um, I'll also begin with the Victorian Trades Hall Council statement of solidarity, which uh, talks about the values that we as trade unionists bring to the work that we do. We are union. We stand united as part of a great movement of workers. Our diversity is our strength, our solidarity is our power. We respect and take care of each other. Prejudice and discrimination, including misogyny, racism, homophobia and all other hatreds have no place in our movement. We rise together. Today and every day we commit ourselves to achieving justice, fairness, equality and dignity for all workers. Solidarity forever, comrades. Um, all right, I've been asked to talk to you today about the impact of neoliberalism and what we as a union movement can do to stand up against that. So probably best that we start off by agreeing on what we mean by the term neoliberalism. And that is something that lots of philosophers and economists and sociologists uh, spend a lot of time arguing about. So I, I just think for simplicity's sake, why don't we just go with this? Neoliberalism is the rejection of the role of government. Neoliberalism says that private enterprise should be the centre of our economy and of our society. It champions policies where everything, including essential services, are sold off to private corporations, markets are deregulated and austerity measures are implemented, while everything that might pose a barrier to profits, pesky things like minimum standards, are completely dismantled. As a trade unionist, neoliberalism represents the opposite of everything we say we stand for. At its heart, neoliberalism rejects the idea of collective and instead focuses on the idea that we're all individuals living in a state of competition rather than in a community. Remember when Thatcher said there is no such thing as society. At its heart, neoliberalism actively disempowers people. It tells them they are responsible for what we understand are actually inherent structural problems created by an exploitative system. That's poverty, joblessness, things like poor health. At its heart, neoliberalism can only thrive when it pushes people to the margins. It needs all of us to be vulnerable 
in order to extract maximum profit. And as trade unions, we understand that that hurts everyone, but it hurts those who are already marginalised in particular. Migrants, young workers, women workers, people reaching the end of their working life, who are often exploited. And unfortunately for us, while neoliberalism used to be a fringe philosophy, it is now the economic consensus. Trickle-down is the way that most Western economies understand how to function. So, what's been the result of that since the 1980s? Well, business has done pretty well out of neoliberalism. Hey, we now have privatisation, deregulation, tax cuts, free trade deals, basically have allowed business to accumulate, in some cases, obscene levels of profit. But we as trade unionists measure that in terms of its cost. So let's talk about inequality. In Australia at the moment, inequality is at a 75-year high. The share of total income going to the top 1% has nearly doubled since the early 1980s. It's risen from 4.1% in 1983 to 8.3% today. So that means that the top 1% now garners around 10% um, in terms of total income. Unemployment. Remember, the great lie of trickle-down is that suppressing wages leads to employment growth. At this moment, 673,000 people are unemployed. That's the people who've registered as unemployed and are actively looking for work. That doesn't count those people who have stopped trying to find work. And ABS statistics released on Monday show that more than one million Australian workers are now underemployed. They want to work more hours, but they can't get those hours. So let's talk about job security. Remember, the great lie at the heart of neoliberalism is that the individual, not the collective, has the power to negotiate outcomes that best suit them. At this moment today, 40% of workers are in some form of insecure work with the rise in labour hire, casualisation and the gig economy. That means they don't have access to paid leave, they don't have regular shifts, they don't know what hours they're working and they cannot plan in terms of a budget. They can't plan week to week. And a majority of those workers actually want some form of secure work. Let's talk about wages. After all, neoliberalism argues that by creating more flexible IR systems and ensuring profit levels remain high, that the benefits will eventually throw, flow through to workers in the form of wages. Today, wage growth is stagnant. Workers have not had a real wage rise in years. And when you have traditional lefty organisations like the IMF and the Reserve Bank, when they start to say that wage growth needs to improve, then you know that neoliberalism is failing. Let's talk about unions. After all, neoliberals champion deregulation. And that should mean that union members are free to engage in whatever bargaining and workplace activities they believe will deliver the best outcomes. We have some of the most restrictive workplace laws in the developed world. Our right to strike is curtailed to the extent that the ILO has criticised it as breaching fundamental international workplace rights. 
Measures to limit our ability to, all, to step on the workplaces mean that today only 14.6% of workers across the country are members of their trade union. Neoliberalism talks about freedom, but it doesn't mean freedom to form collectives where that interferes with the rights of companies to make profits. And yet, its proponents still spout bullshit lines about neoliberalism, saying things like, if you have a go, you'll get a go. So we can talk at length about the problems and the impacts of neoliberalism. But at some point, we figure we've got to talk about solutions. We have to be the resistance against the rising tide of inequality. The union movement is and has always been committed to ensuring that workers have good, secure jobs, that pay well, and that they come home safely at the end of the day. And that when they retire, they can do so comfortably. As unionists, we believe we can only do this together. The power of the union movement lies in our solidarity. As we say, we believe our diversity is our strength, our solidarity is our power. So let's talk about some of the groups that we at Trades Hall in particular are working with around those, um, around those things. First off, young workers. At least a fifth of young workers have their hard-earned wages stolen from them in scams. They're paid for fewer hours than they work, they are illegally denied correct pay, they have their super stolen and they have their accrued leave withheld. So that's one in five young workers. One in three young retail workers recently surveyed for work, were working for less than the minimum wage under the retail award. An audit by the Fair Work Ombudsman found that 46% of restaurants, cafes and catering businesses, 47% of takeaway food businesses and 20% of accommodation, taverns and bar businesses were breaking workplace laws. An audit of the fast food industry found 84% of fast food stores were responsible for some form of underpayment. 39% weren't paying the incorrect base pay and 44% did not pay any penalty rates or loanings. At the same time, only 8% of young workers are members of the relevant union. That's our fault. And that's our future unless we start to do things differently. So what did we do at Trades Hall? In 2015, we set up the Young Workers Centre. The Young Workers Centre is a one-stop shop for young workers who want to learn about their rights at work or who need assistance in resolving workplace issues. We've got two arms. We've got a community legal centre, and that is staffed by young students who are studying law at university who provide advice and support to young workers who ring in. So it's young people talking to young people about workplace rights. And they will represent workers, particularly in fields that are in places that are ununionised. So if a worker is in a workplace that is already unionised, then, then we refer them to their relevant union. If they are in a workplace or an industry that is largely ununionised, then we will talk to them about what they can do. And the first questions we ask are, are you the only person affected? Because if you are not, we are in a better position to deal with your problem if all of you work together. So we work on a collective model of workplace issue resolution. We also have an outreach service. Now our outreach service goes out to the places where young people are, where they're going into their first job. So we deliver high school modules, which are about workplace rights, and they're years nine, 10, and 11. 
and we go and talk to them about what to expect and what their rights are when they go to work. And we work with them on projects, in some cases, where we aim to fix things at those schools. So for instance, a group of young workers, a group of young people in a school, a whole lot of them were going to work for the local fish and chip place. And that local fish and chip place was screwing them. So the kids at the school decided to get together and they held a rally outside the fish and chip place to protest the fact that a succession of workers, of young people going in there to do that work, were getting done over. And in doing that, they fixed their problem together. So they're not in union, but they are operating as union together. And we do, so our aim is to change the laws so that bosses that steal from workers face serious consequences rather than just a slap in the wrist. I'll just say to you, in terms of that outreach, in 2017-18, we trained over 8,100 8, young people had contact with that outreach service that provided information about rights and entitlements. We work by, by organising, by creating collectives of young people and giving them the tools they need to stand up for their rights. It was the sustained activism from young people, young hospitality, retail and fast food workers that won a commitment from the Andrews Labor government in Victoria to introduce laws criminalising wage theft. That is a good start. Now our aim is to deliver that nationally. And there are other TLCs, Trades and Labor Councils, around the country that are following our model of a young workers centre and that means, and learning from the things that we've learnt, and that means that we can all start to operate together. And in the process, by the way, we are learning how we can better speak to young people about collective action and about trade unions. It's important that we understand that it is not young people that don't understand about collective action, they do. If you see climate strikes, if you see those things, those things are driven by young people, they understand collective action. It is our responsibility to make unions relevant to them in how they understand what they can achieve. Let's talk about the gig economy. This is the pointy end of neoliberalism and unregulated labour. Gig work or on-demand work is task-based work where workers essentially act as subcontractors, as independent contractors. Big companies like Uber use gig work to get around entitlements and obligations including around safety that they would otherwise owe to employees. Our vision is for on-demand workers to be safe and heard at work, have a living wage and be afforded decent conditions. That is going to require big change. And for that to happen, we need those workers to come together. The challenge for unions has been, how do you organise workers who are out on the road, don't have a workplace and don't have structures that bring them together? Well, we decide to start with those that may have informal structures. Now, who's seen those delivery riders out on the road? Deliveroo, all right, all right. So it turns out you see those riders that you see out on bikes delivering food for companies like Uber Eats, Deliveroo, Fedora, they love their bikes. That's why they do the job. And they love getting together and talking about their bikes while they're waiting to get calls for the next job. And you can bet at some point those conversations turn to their crappy wages and the lack of safety in the work that they do out on the road. And we know that because at Trades Hall we have organisers who also love bikes. 
and whose job it is to go out and find those writers in the places and spaces that they come together. And not surprisingly, those conversations that we've been having tell us that those workers know that the neoliberal framework of flexibility isn't working for them. Three out of four of those writers are earning less than the minimum wage. Nearly half of them have been injured on the job and they're not guaranteed work, pay or leave entitlements. And anyway, after a while in those conversations, you tend to find, you know, those ones that want to do a bit more than just talk about it. They want to do something about it. So we're working with them and with the Transport Workers Union to establish a worker-led collective of those riders. One that can educate other workers about their rights and that will come together to stand up for their demands for better pay and safety. That's part of an international collective of gig workers fighting for better rights and conditions. And it's beginning to make waves. Those Victorian writers recently featured in a story in the New York Times about writers for delivery companies standing up and demanding rights to better pay, the right to organise collectively, and the rights to be covered by workplace safety laws. Working women. So, I don't know, we've been banging on about the challenges faced by working women for a really long time. So in 2016, we rolled out a research project with working women across Victoria to ask them, what were the good things about work? What do you like about working? And then tell us what are the challenges that you face as a result of um, your gender at work. And we published that in a report called Stop Gender Violence at Work. That survey told us that in Victoria, 64% of working women had experienced gendered violence in the workplace. One in four had left the workplace because they felt unsafe and that's supported by the findings of an ACTU survey which found that over two-thirds of workers have experienced sexual harassment in the workplace. That is a classic example of the fact that changing laws does not change workplaces because it, that has been illegal for a very, very long time. So we set out to develop training and resources aimed at promoting workplace culture where women feel safe, respected and equal. We now have a world first stop gender violence at work clause that sits alongside our world first family violence clause, prevention of family violence clause. We do preventative training around um, gender violence in the workplace. We've been campaigning to get the workplace safety regulator, that is WorkSafe, to understand gender violence as a workplace hazard. And by doing that, what you do is remove it from the realm of asking an individual woman to pursue an issue within power structures that often make it very difficult and you can make it a collective issue because it becomes an obligation of the employer to fix a safety hazard. In the same way that when you walk into a workplace and you see a railing that is not attached, you can also say there is gender violence happening in this workplace and it is up to you to fix it. What else did the survey find? Well, it's no surprise to find that women are frustrated by the lack of progress around equal pay and around the continuing discrimination they face as a result of parental or caring responsibilities. I can talk to you about all of that, but just so you know, um, the next challenge for us is how do we build a collective of women across industries and workplaces to deliver real and meaningful change to close those gaps? And all I'm gonna to say to you at this moment is watch this space around that we have a plan around um, large-scale mobilisation for that. Um, let's talk about migrant workers. When workers come from overseas, they are often exploited. They're underpaid, 
they're working high-risk jobs and they're not being given the training they need to do the job safely. The exploitation of migrant workers happens in part because big business and conservative governments work to stoke division among workers and um, that helps them essentially along ethnic, religious and racial lines. The exploitation in workplaces is because employers exploit structural racism to pay migrant or offshore workers less than they would a local worker and that puts down the pressure on wages and that further entrenches migrant worker disadvantage. We have restrictive workplace visa laws and that pushes migrant worker exploitation underground and it prevents them from being able to speak up against wage theft and abuse. Um, in the union movement, we come across farm workers, for example, out in Shepparton and other places. And those farm workers are often women. In some cases, they're working illegally. We have at least one instance of a farm worker who is, was required to go and collect her wages through her labour hire company. She, was, um, she had to pay to live in a house with 25 other people. And when she went to collect her wages, she was pressured um, to give sex in exchange for receiving her wages. That labour hire company held her passport, which meant that she wasn't able to go anywhere or to end that. And when she went to report it to the police, they said to her, in those situations, unfortunately, you're not going to be here when this becomes prosecuted. So under those um, circumstances, there's nothing we can do about it. So we have established the Migrant Workers' Centre. Their job is to have organisers from community organise in community and in language. So we have five organisers, they speak a range of languages, Mandarin, a number of Indian languages, a number of Arabic languages, and their job is to go out and speak to community about rights and entitlements at work, but also to organise in community. So that those workers are building collective together to stand up for their rights. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. A weak solidarity, Bricky Team listener, when the ingratitude of all these Pacific Island countries is breathtaking breath. Sorry, I'm having trouble concentrating. I, I tossed and turned all night. I, I reckon I got no more than an hour's sleep because how can we concentrate when we face the disaster of an inverted yield curve? Anything that threatens capitalism is so distressing, but, but I'll try to go on. Ingratitude breathtaking after Trubuazi promises all this money, 500 million for them to address the results of climate change. If there is such a thing, address with adjustment solutions like buying lots of rowboats and oars, allowing their population to depart their island states, no longer island states, but now underneath the rowboats. And there's even enough money for many of them to add an outboard motor to their climate solution. Yet, ingrates, they are prepared to accept our generous offer to help them address the effects of the just to climate change, if there is, but then expect Trublowozzi to commit to reducing the causes of climate change, if there is. Stop mining and using good, clean coal and other fossils. Don't they care about the world's great resource companies, the mums and dads investors who'll suffer jobs, jobs, jobs? With them, it's all self, 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 almost suggesting the 500 mil is nothing but trying to buy them off. 
As if Big Supremo scuttled in more less than his team, and the great resource companies would be so cruel. No, it's a genuine offer to help them for as long as they stay above the briny. And we can be sure that in private meetings during the Pacific Island Forum... Scuttlemen would have promised a post-sinking into the briny helping hand by offering to house them on beautiful locations like Nauru, Manus and even Christmas Island for as long as those places stay above the briny. In at least one example of togetherness, the other, all the other participants went along with the only kid marching in step and agreed to Troubluwazi's sensible changes to the communique that there is no climate crisis and criticising the cause of climate change, if there is, is irresponsible. I have one overriding duty, and that is to represent the Troubluwazi economy. Beautiful, beautiful coal. Scuttle them showed the others what real sense and sensibility means as he stuffed a, stuffed a sock down the throat of the New Zealand Big Supremo. Turu Tuvalu, it's been pleasant knowing you. Glencore, Rio, BHP, will we ever thankful when you're used to be? Islands like you beneath the sea, all in the name of profitability. Perhaps you could grow salted rice to offset your welcome sacrifice. Why should we fossils come to a halt when your problem is clearly your very own fault? 500 mil to show you the way out of the taxes that we don't pay. But as you sink, a big thank you as we count the cash to Roo to Baloo. Speaking of sensible balance in the communique, last week we commented on Scuttledeb's sensible balance in sending train killers to the Straits of Hamuz to support our very, very close friend, the US of the UN of the US of the World's campaign to restore world peace by strangling evil Iran without Trublawazi getting involved. And we celebrated the resurrection of the coalition of the killing as Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country, Big Primo Boris Joinum son also said he would Joinum son also send marine train killers just like old times and sadly the other signatories to the evil Iran nuclear treaty which the US of tore up unilaterally are the close friends of the US of so they will not be joining in so they too won't be involved in what some might see as the best way not to be involved. Won't be for some unaccountable reasons they seem to feel the US of itself is responsible for the mess and they call themselves friends. So any wonder poor Boris is join them son when it comes to kill, kill, kill brackets not involved but Boris exit them son when it comes to these fair weather friends who hide behind the gutless excuse that Iran had stuck by the treaty. Still on kill, 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 Scuttledem is also considering allowing our very, very close friend to add to our protection with all these missiles that would just happen to be pointing at evil China. To join Pine Gap and all those US of train killers stationed around Troubluwazi, also to add to our protection. Or, let's be clear, 
without getting involved. Bringing us back to another another uh, item from last week, specialist killed with a little finger train killer turned Polly, Andrew Hasty to war's timely warning that evil China wants the Aryan race to run the world, which has caused so many contortions in the caring business class government, it makes a circus contortionist look rigid as they attempt to show our obsequious civility to our masters, or sorry, our great ally and very, very close and warm friend, and not show our biggest trading partner, evil China, that we are obsequiously servile. And it's just so difficult as the Minister for Capitalist Trade, that is, good, good trade, Simon Booming Poppetsham, said Andrew's liking our biggest trading partner to Nazi Germany would aggravate our biggest trading partner, showing how sensitive evil China must be to a simple little comparison. And Scuttle then was running from the comments as fast as possible and presumably would ensure that if we did have all these missiles pointing at evil China, we would most certainly not be involved. And the Socialist Party joined them in pointing out how our warm relationship with the US of and supporting US of aggression toward our biggest trading partner didn't affect our close trading relationship. And by week's end, they were all so contorted, they were staring up each other's. Uh, Well, I won't be crude, but it took the Socialist Party's deputy chair of Andrew's security through train killing committee to support Andrew and tell us he, Andrew, had given a timely warning, showing what a dedicated little socialist the socialist is and what a deep social thinker. And I'd tell you his name, except I can't remember it, and what's it matter? I hope no one thinks our close, close friends, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, replaying an assertion that a former US of big supremo was involved in the death of one of the filthy rich in a US of cell, whose trial would have fingered a number of other filthy rich, likely including a member of Her Most Gracious Majesty's in Breadlot, indicates Donald thinks the former big supremo was involved. Being involved when not involved is a theme today, isn't it? No, he just wants a full investigation and used the former Big Supremo assertion as an example. Oh, and don't think Donald may have said the filthy rich pedophile deceased was a great guy in vision of them perving together because he says he didn't think he was a great guy. He stopped being a great guy who threw great parties when he got sprung. Finally, and sadly, on a serious note, the death on Wednesday of our long-term 3CR colleague, Chris Gaffney. Speaking of long-term and reflecting on our respective ages, Chris and I were part of the left forces on the young Labor state executive going back to the late 60s, when the Victorian ALP was genuinely left-wing, dared discuss the overthrow of capitalism, respected militant unionism. Another former 3CR colleague, Bill Hartley, was state secretary, but while we me you thought this was the real ALP, we soon realised it was an aberration, a temporary aberration, created by the Labor split of the time, the reactionary forces in Victoria having formed the DLP, and it was not until those forces returned that we realised what the real ALP was, and with many others, left it, realising it was and is a lost cause in the struggles against capitalism. Chris gave up his job as a solicitor to pursue that struggle for the rest of his life, part-time work as an actor, while serving many years as Secretary of the Labor College at Trades Hall, and producing the 
the periodic Labour College Review as part of worker education. He got great enjoyment out of the ads which funded the review with messages like, good luck to the trade union movement, from the very enemies he was fighting, without them realising the purpose of the exercise, exercise was to destroy them. He was a firm believer in Trotsky's theory of permanent revolution. Back then also, I was responsible for keeping a couple of draft resistors underground and used Chris's home in Ashburton at that time to harbour these lawless criminals. And obviously he was active in the anti-war movement generally, which was in many ways seminal to the political development of our generation. We also did a fair bit of street theatre and plays together, and as the writer for a lot of it, I figured he must have thought my lines were pretty ordinary, because he, he usually ad-libbed, and I can hardly recall him delivering a line as I wrote it. And not saying he could be a bit vague, but on one occasion he came round to my place to go through a script and brought his dog with him, and about two hours later I went out the back door to be greeted by Chris's dog. He'd forgotten it. A few minutes later, knock on the door, oops! And throughout all that, he devoted hours to this station on his Friday morning Keep Left talkback program running for years with two other late colleagues, Sigrid Borker and Bill Deller. And when Bill died a few years ago, I filled in on the program with Chris until he could put a new team together. And while he always allowed callers to have their say, he was also prepared to debate issues with them sometimes week after week after week. And on Tuesdays, his two-hour Great Voices program revealed his deep love and knowledge of music and opera and song. Two hours on air, but many more hours putting the show together. And beyond that, providing numerous CDs of the great singers as fundraisers for 3CR, which are still on sale and will continue to be a reminder of his work here. Regular listeners will know Chris battled on with a fading voice, and he had a great voice for radio, so it was painful to hear it match his body's decline, but he battled on as long as he could. Perhaps to finish on a lighter note, Chris died a day before we learned of the inverted yield curve, which has had all of us losing sleep, saving him despairing at capitalism facing a crisis. He would have said it is a permanent crisis, unlike climate change, which is not a crisis, but a reality. Thanks for everything, Chris. Good morning. Yes, and uh, Vale, uh, Chris Gaffney. And on the line now, we've got Jab Rong, uh, activist, Zelenak. How are you, Zelenak? Yeah, I'm all right, thank you. You've just woken up, haven't you? Um, no, I've been away for a little while. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, yeah. There's been some exciting stuff that uh, the uh, Jabberong fight, uh, fighters have put on down at Victoria Parliament this week, correct? Um. I suppose yeah, there's some things I, um, 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 I, I can't talk about. Oh, okay. Um, just due to um, the sensitivity and just due to um, what's happened to me of recent in the last um, few couple of days. Okay, all right. Um, so, all right, let's let's get to the nub of the matter. Uh, the sacred trees, uh, protecting yeah. the sacred trees outside Ararat, as it's called these days. Um, can you give our listeners some background and the seriousness of this issue? Um, I can't. I can't speak about it. Um, in all honesty, I've been um, uh, yeah, forced into not being able to speak about it. Oh, really? Yeah. Are you an, under an injunction? Um, I'm actually under um, court orders. Oh, right. So I can't even do an interview with you. 
Not, 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 partic- not really, no. What can you talk about? Um, I can talk about my life. I can talk about. Um, I, I can talk about where I am. Um, All right, go ahead. Um, I'm down here on Japron Country, um, particularly um, looking after some particular sacred trees, um, uh, which have been here the best part of 800 years. Um, and they're particular birthing trees in a particular birthing site. Um, so I'm here, I've been conducting culture here the last, um, over the last 15 months. Um, and yeah, um, that's, yeah, that's what's, what's, what's happening. At the same time, they want to knock these trees down. I mean, they're negotiating a treaty with the First Nations people, the Victorian government, so it seems all a bit hypocritical for the government to be doing what they're doing. Uh, yeah, yeah. It does seem that way. And we are uh, people who haven't ceded their sovereignty within our country, so um, discussion that needs to be had a bit further. Have the protesters... Um, being in contact with the union movement, um, if yeah, but work if they do attempt to knock these trees down, the uh, the various Something unions to put it some. I can't talk about. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, uh, are you allowed to talk about the apparent eviction notice? No. Okay. Um, are you? Uh, now there's three camps, aren't I there? I have been. I have been pretty much silenced in a while. Oh, this is pretty outrageous, isn't it? Okay, uh, we're aware that um, the uh, that uh, apparently there's been an eviction notice that uh, the police are coming on. I yeah, I can't talk about it. Um, no, you can't talk about it, but I can. Yeah. Yeah, August the twenty second, apparently, because the uh, legal observers have called for people to go down to outside Ararat to help uh, observe if there's any issues uh, with this uh, the police arrival. I noticed that in the press release that uh, there there was. Uh, um, that the camp hadn't actually seen any documentation or any signatories from a judge or magistrate of any sort in regards to an eviction. Um, so that's an interesting point. Uh, uh, you obviously aren't going anywhere. Can you mention, talk about that? Um, I, I I stay here um, and um, my I am to reside um, in Melbourne, but I do come and stay here. Um, a, a fair bit whilst uh, residing in Melbourne. Mm. Uh, that's your country? Yes, this is my country. Um, I'm uh, prepared to, uh, to go, go, the, the, go the mileage in terms of being on my country. Um, Japrong as a, as a whole, it's not just a 12 and a half kilometres, it's, it's, it's a whole lot to the Japrong nation. Um, and so, yeah... Can you talk to us a little bit about the Japawong Nation? Yeah. Could you talk about that for me? Yeah, I can talk about uh, our nation. Good. Go ahead. Um, we are um, we are connected to the Kulin Nations. Um, we are a part of the Kulin Nations. We are not a part of um, Ma uh, or Eastern Ma. We, we are um, a part of Kulin. Um, uh, we we are we were forty one clans strong 
um, now down to 12, 12 clans, 12 family groups. Um, so, you know, 29 have been um, either massacred or, or pushed out of country. Um, and we're very, very, um, we're very, very strong um, people. Um, we uh, are very strong in what we do. Um, in, very strong in, in, in our beliefs um, and our customs. And, you know, we're very, we're, we're, our country is very much intact um, culturally. Um, so there's, there's, there's lots and lots to our country that we can, you know, be able to take and, and, and share our, our share. Um, with our children and, and be able to, you know, show our children and, and whatnot through country, take them through their libraries and take them through their uh, their hospitals and take them through their medicine places and take them through their, their bush tucker places, take them through their, you know, their, their minor tens and all those sorts of things out in the bush, <laughs> essentially. C- can you just um, describe for the listeners the significance of these uh, trees? Birthing place doesn't get any more than significant than a, than a birthing place, place of creation, place um, our women and children um, uh, are birthed in. That's the significance of um, yeah, this part of the country. It's a, it's a creation country. Uh, it's interesting, you know, because uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I've observed, and I'm, I'm in. I, I'm no expert, of course. Uh, but uh, it, this is your country, and as you say, you're pointing out that there's a whole range of things in this landscape which uh, probably Anglo eyes would not see, but are incredibly important, and uh, the mysteries of uh, Jabberwong uh, existence. Now, um, would it be true to say that with the colonisation that uh, Jabberwong people have actually kept to themselves the significance of many of the things, elements in the landscape, to try and protect them. Yes, we certainly have because there's not much. You know, it's, it's, when we think about what's already, you know, been decimated throughout um, colonial, colonialism, um, you know, there's, there's, we're really only holding on to, you know, probably five percent of of what what what, you know, it, out of the hundred percent of what our mob did every single day within their lives. Um, within ceremony, within practice, within, you know, teaching. Um, and so for, for us, we we have, you know, we have remained um, very quiet. Um, we have kept our, a lot of our, our, our culture to, to us. Um, and now we're, we're, we're now starting to, to pour all of that out. We're now starting to um, you know, um, take, take our place in our country, um, we're now starting to, um, you know, affect Japarong law um, within our country under, you know, under Bunjil, under under the code of Bunjil. And so, yeah, we're we're you know we're starting to really um, come to the forefront and, and you know show show who we are and and and, and really um, assert our, our our place in our in our country and in our homelands. Thank you, Zelenak, for spending some time with us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks. Um, take care. You, t- you too. I hope to see all your mob around Jabron country soon. Yeah, certainly.
Red alert. Numbers are needed at the Japurang Heritage Protection Embassy camps immediately. Sacred birthing trees on Japurang country need protecting. Over 50 generations have been born on these sites and the birthing trees themselves are 800 years old. These trees are being protected from the Victorian Labor Party's planned highway extension that is set to destroy this sacred dreaming landscape. The cops are coming with eviction orders very soon. The campaign to protect country is led by Japarang traditional owners who are calling on people from all walks of life for support. You can help by joining traditional owners at the camp on Japarang country near Ararat or by donating and putting pressure on Daniel Andrews to protect this sacred land. Visit dwembassy.com for more information and updates. No trees, no treaty. How can we dance where the world is turning? How can we sleep while our beds are burning? Out here, the river the bloodwood and the desert oak, holding wrecks and boiling diesels, steaming 45 degrees. The time has come. The time has come. Save their fear. To save fear's fear. To pay the rent. To pay the rent. To pay our share. To pay our share. The time has come. The time has come. A fact's a fact. A fact's a fact. Belong to us. It belongs to them. Let's give it back. Back in with dance when I
the time has come to say fear, to pay the rent on, to pay our share. The time has come, a fact's a fact, it belongs to them. Great version, <laughs> great version of the uh, Midnight Oil song, uh, Beds Are Burning, Declan Kelly. Uh, you're back on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Marcus, and online we've got uh, Reem. How are you, Reem? I'm good, thanks. Pretty excited. Yeah, Extension Rebellion, Does Moreland Die In, Ride In. Tell us all about it. Yeah, so um, after this I'm on my way up to Moreland Station where we're meeting at 10, and we'll be doing um, a ride and walk down... Sydney Road, um, blocking off the whole of Sydney Road until we get to the um, town hall. And in that intersection, we'll be having a die-in, which is a, kind of a very visual theatrical representation of what will happen if we don't get our governments to act on the climate crisis that we're facing. Extension Rebellion uh, quite obviously has uh, built a very strong contingent on that side of town. It has, yes, yeah. But actually in Melbourne, we've got uh, a number of different areas all forming. Um, it, it started up in Melbourne at the start of the year. They've been doing events um, predominantly focused in the CBD for the last um, six or seven months. But now we're kind of trying to expand out into the suburbs to get more and more people involved because that's the main aim of Extinction Rebellion is to um, join all the individuals to join together en masse to show how much we care about this issue and how much we need the government to act on it. Yeah, because it's a do-or-die issue, isn't it, the environment? It really is. It really is. And, and I guess the, the, uh, a, the demands of Extinction Rebellion, that have, um, that, and there's a number of countries all over the world now that are um, joining forces with Extinction Rebellion... Uh, and individuals in there, uh, we really need to start telling the truth that actually it is do or die. If we don't do something about this um, and we don't act now, then we really are going to be facing uh, a crisis and and there's going to be a lot of damage to our planet and to us. And so we need to do something and we need to move beyond politics because the governments have let us down. People have been talking about this. The scientists have been talking about this for years. And really, the government is just fueled by big business and not representing us as people who need to take care of this planet. It's fascinating to me because I'm a pretty old stick and uh, I know from uh, in my youth that uh, people were talking about this in the late 70s. Scientists had calculated already and done projections. So we're talking... 50 years. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the science is just getting more stronger and stronger, but we still have people 
in our government, which is scary, who deny the science. Um, we have people who say they believe the science, but aren't doing anything about it. Oh, we can't do anything about it because, you know, we can't change anything because that would mean we'd have to change. Yes, and change, I mean, change <laughs> is hard, but we have been able to do that. And often the um, analogy of when, when we go to war, the whole country changes and stops doing what they were doing and, and focuses on that. And we are facing a, a massive disaster bigger than any war, because it's a worldwide thing, and people are still saying it's too hard to change. It's it's fascinating, too, because uh, a laughing boy, uh, our PM, went off to uh, the Pacific <laughs> Forum and uh, yes. di- really didn't like, felt really uncomfortable because nobody liked him. Yes, and, and then in the end he said we made a sensible decision. I'm not sure it's that sensible to not... Um, try and put the fire out when your house is burning down. Actually, (laughs) it's pretty um, scary. Um, He's just sitting there, hands covering his eyes and trying not to look at the disaster that we're facing. And, yeah, and those poor um, Pacific Island countries are disappearing. But we're also seeing it here in Australia. It's not like we haven't had um, the effects of the climate crisis already happening for us particularly for in regional and rural areas and, and the farmers, and but also in the cities. We're having heat waves that are much more damaging. People are really suffering and still we're doing very little about it and saying that we have time to do something about it, which is the scary thing, that we don't have time. The scientists are telling us we don't have time. And so today uh, people are joining together in this event going down Sydney Road. So tell people about it so that they can join in. Yes, we would love people to join in. Really, we're just trying to make a lot of noise and have a lot of fun to to make sure that we get heard. We'll be meeting at Moreland Station at 10 o'clock and then, as I said, we'll be heading towards um, Brunswick Town Hall um, along Sydney Road so people can come in and join us at any point on their bikes, or walking, um, and then the meeting point at the end will be uh, Brunswick Town Hall, and that's where we'll be having the die-in and some speakers and really um, making ourselves heard. And I think it's great that there's so many people in Moreland we know who care about this issue, and we just want everyone to get on the street and join us. And you expect to be there at 11.30? Um, At the Town Hall for around 11.30, yep. Thanks, Reem. Yep. Thank you. Yeah, there you go. We've come to the That's end better. of <laughs> Yeah, that is better. Sorry. Um we've come to the end of Solidarity Breakfast and uh we've covered a fair amount of territory today. We went to the ACT and their idea about what to do about wage theft, uh industrial magistrates court. Uh feeding through quickly and dealing with employers who have uh f- uh failed to pay their employees correctly uh then we went to uh, yeah, ireland yeah we spoke to chris mcanally the vice chairman of the james connolly association he was talking about the uh, rally for truth and justice at the state library of victoria today at two o'clock yeah and uh then we were able to uh go to the fair go for pensioners conference where uh will strike from the victoria trades hall talked about neoliberalism and what uh, unions are doing to uh fight for for workers rights 
this is the week that was followed. And uh, then we had a very interesting con- or non-conversation or kind of a conversation with uh, Zelenak from uh, the uh, Jab Rawong uh, uh, protests down outside Ararat to protect the um, sacred trees down there. There's three camps. Uh, He's had an injunction put on him, uh, and that is from Thursday to now because I contacted him on Thursday. So that's a fascinating thing. I can say that uh, from their press release that uh, they, uh, members of their group, went to Parliament House and uh, they um, apparently... Here it is. They apparently, uh, uh, this is about helping to send a message to the Victorian government that the Jabberwong are fighting to protect their land. And supporters of the Jabberwong uh, again disrupted parliamentary proceedings by gluing themselves to the railings of the gallery and calling out, listen to Jabberwong to the parliament below. Uh, and they captured these scenes uh, and posted it on Facebook, so you may be able to find it there. So uh, they're serious. It's a serious business. As I said, there are people, uh, hopefully we'll be able to do a live-to-air from there on starting 21st to the 22nd uh, if uh, equipment and people are available. But uh, if you can get down there to help them, they would be very pleased. Anyway, uh, they finished with telling you about the ride-in, die-in. You don't have to ride, you can walk uh, along Sydney Road uh, from uh, the uh, train station. Uh, what was the name of the train station? Moreland Train Station. Moreland Train Station. 10am, they're meeting there and they're going to the Brunswick Town Hall at 11.30am. Yeah, and we're going to go out now with uh, Lou Bennett and the Sweet Cheeks waving goodbye. Coming up next is Asia Pacific listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.